Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Future of Trucking event and welcome to Toucan. My name is Antonia and I'm here to give you a couple of tips on how this platform works. Before we start, you can see that right next to me, there's a QR code. Please scan this with your smartphone, any smartphone camera. You can also find the link to the poll. It's one question in the global chat, which is down in the bottom right corner. So right now you're all in a Toucan space. Toucan was designed specifically to allow you to move seamlessly between individuals and groups so that you can talk about what you want to talk about whenever you want to talk about it. And so the way that you join a group or an individual is by hovering over that group or individual and clicking the join button. If you want to leave a group, there are two ways. The first is just click on another group or individual's join button directly and you'll get moved to them. Or you can, every group in the middle has a leave button. So you can hit that leave button and you'll exit that group immediately. The maximum number of people that you can have in the group is 16. So right now what I'm in is called presenter mode. And this is how all of our debaters are going to be speaking today. If you are in presenter mode and you aren't already in a group, that means that you cannot see or hear anybody else, but all the attendees in the event can see and hear you. And this is on purpose. So this is so that attendees at an event can speak with one another while the presenters are presenting and have kind of side conversations and chit chat to react to the information that's being presented. Lastly, there are a couple of colorful circles that are floating around with labels on them. These are essentially labeled tables. So if you are interested in talking about those topics or participating in those, in those sessions, then just hover over those circles and click the join button. That's all for me. I hope you enjoy your event. Thank you so much. And remember, please fill out the poll. Good morning, afternoon, or evening, wherever you are, and welcome back to Impact Debates. I'm Steve Hellman, Managing Partner of Mobility Impact Partners. <clears throat> mobility Impact Partners is a coalition of mobility stakeholders, automotive and trucking OEMs and tier one suppliers, electric utilities, telecoms, finance, insurance, oil and gas companies, fleets, freight, logistics, all members of the mobility ecosystem, plus a group of global cities and municipalities that work together to identify common challenges, find solutions to those challenges, invest in those solutions, and then drive those innovations back into the operating businesses of our partners. <clears throat> we teamed up with Bain, Credit Suisse, the Autotech Council, CalSTAR, CoMotion, EPRI, and others with guidance from the American Debate League to create today's program. The resolution for today's debate is, within the next decade, which platform, internal combustion, battery electric, or hydrogen, will represent the plurality of new vehicle sales for long-haul trucking? Arguing for internal combustion will be Alan Schaefer, Executive Director of the Diesel Technology Forum. In favor of battery electric will be Colin Murphy, Deputy Director of the UC Davis Policy Institute. And in favor of hydrogen will be Craig Scott from Toyota. 
The debate will be moderated by Mike Ruth, who is executive director at the North American Council for Freight Efficiency. We're doing a number of new things today. Much as I love spending every hour of every day on Zoom calls, <clears throat> I'd like to thank the team from Toucan, which allows us to combine a structured program like this with a much more natural networking event. After the debate is over, we hope that the people on Toucan will mingle with the debaters and some other thought leaders we've invited as guests. And we're trying a three-way debate format today because of the nature of the topic. As Antonia requested, please everyone, both on Toucan and watching the live stream, please use the QR code to answer the poll question now if you haven't already done so. We'll ask you the same question at the end of the debate, at which time we'll share the results with you as well. Before we get started, a few quick housekeeping items to go over. First of all, the session is being recorded and registered guests will receive a link to the recording. This debate is on the record and members of the media are free to use the material. In that regard, please note very importantly that all of the debaters are here today in their individual capacities, not as representatives of their organizations or companies. There will not be a question and answer opportunity for the audience during the debate, but that's what the reception afterwards is for. Each of the participants will be available to answer your questions afterwards at the end of the debate, Antonia from Toucan will give you some more tips on how best to enjoy that event. Now a quick intro. After 22 years at Cummins and Navistar, Mike Roth is the executive director of the North American Council for Freight Efficiency, who spends every day working on the challenge we're discussing today, how to keep our economy running in the most economical and sustainable manner possible. Over to you, Mike. Thanks a lot, Steve. Um, boy, I'm really excited to do this today. I mean, um, as Steve mentioned, uh, we get this question, I get this question every day. Um, you know, diesel, battery, hydrogen, get it every day, probably multiple times a day. And that's because NACTI's been working to help the industry develop, deploy, and, and scale technologies to decarbonize freight for over a decade. Uh, we've helped the diesel trucks get from maybe six to eight to 10 mile per gallon, hauling tens of thousands of pounds of goods around the country. We've been um, working on batteries and, and we have uh, definitely done work in hydrogen fuel cells. So we feel like we understand these uh, these technologies and part of why I'm here sort of helping to, to moderate these uh, three, these uh, three experts. You know, in transporting goods by long haul vehicles um, on the roads is a key element to healthy economies. And but it comes with a lot of, of carbon emissions. And so these solutions and the, the work being done on diesel as well is really important um, to get started with that. So if I can have um, Alan, Colin, and Craig uh, join me, we'll, uh, we'll get started uh, here in just a few minutes and really want to appreciate, uh, I appreciate them uh, doing this and um, sharing their thoughts. Uh, they'll each have some opening comments and then um, they'll challenge each other in a real debate forum. I, I see this as almost like a, a presidential debate sort of forum. So um, let's get started. Uh, and uh, first up will be a uh, six-minute uh, opening statement by uh, by, diesel, by uh, Alan Schaefer, um, uh, who will uh, will share some information on diesel. Hello, Alan. Take it over. Great. Thank you very much, Mike. And uh, good morning, everyone. Let me. Uh, Share my screen here with everybody. 
going. Excellent. How's that? Okay. Thank you. Um, so I want to uh, uh, share with you a few thoughts this morning about uh, about the role of diesel in the future. Um, a quick uh, word about the Diesel Technology Forum, which I'm proud to represent. Um, we represent the leaders in advanced technology, engines, and fuels. Of course, that includes diesel, but also uh, a number of other technologies as well. Um, I thought I'd start today by really trying to level set um, everyone with where we are. And uh, diesel dominates today's commercial trucking fleet. Uh, you get a sense from the pie chart here, about 11 million diesels on the road. And uh, the rest is uh, primarily gasoline with some small uh, breakouts for electric and natural gas. So diesel's the dominant technology. Um, and the last two decades, diesel has really been defined by trying to reduce emissions. And today I'm, I'm really proud to say that diesel is a technology that is near zero uh, for both particulate matter and nitrogen oxide emissions, um, uh, dramatically lower than it was uh, several decades ago. Um, and uh, the research that we've recently completed suggests that about half of all the commercial vehicles operating on the roads today are of the newest generation of diesel. And that's important to recognize because these have delivered substantial benefits to society and to the trucking industry uh, since their inception in terms of the fuel savings and CO2 mitigation, as you can see here. Um, so uh, the technologies are out there and they're doing a great job already in helping to reduce emissions um, uh, nationwide. Uh, when you think about that on a, a comparative scale, um, it's, a, it's it can be quite impressive looking at it. Um, here you get the idea that you, it's uh, the equivalent of removing about 43 million passenger vehicles from the road or a pretty good size wind farm um, in terms of energy savings. So um, the new technology diesel engines are delivering on the, on, on the, uh, on the promise of cleaner air and lower emissions. Um, I want to uh, make a, a case that the diesel stays number one now to 2030 um, for five basic reasons. Uh, first of all, availability and performance. Uh, diesel meets the demands of today's trucking industry. That's the range of operation, uh, the nationwide access to fuel, fueling, servicing, and parts, many other aspects of a fleet operation. Um, second, it's a technology that is more efficient and even lower emissions with even more progress planned um, based on some new regulations coming out. Um, also, uh, my third uh, reason that diesel is going to stay number one to 2030 is that there is a very high threshold cost and still fairly considerable uncertainties inherent in the other alternatives, hydrogen and electrification. Um, most of these center around issues regarding infrastructure, um, range of operation, um, secondary life for batteries and other kinds of considerations there. So I think we'll get into more of those details as we go on today. Um, my fourth reason is that the trucking industry's design and the market really demands more diesel. And uh, even with uh, some of the direct policy interventions that have been taking place um, in California, particularly with their advanced clean truck rule um, in 2035 in California, only 40% of the class eight tractors must be sold as zero emission vehicles. So that means that 60% in 2035 are still going to be diesel in California, which is leading uh, policy space uh, here. So um, keep that in mind as we uh, have these discussions. Um, and the great diversity of the trucking industry and its need for flexibility, um, the domination by smaller fleets, um, and it is uh, uh, the psyche of, of the customers and the aversion to, uh, to risk, perhaps, or other factors that demand uh, more diesel. And the last reason really is time. 
Um, it's 2022. We're eight years away. Um, I think it's, um, you know, will be a, a, a monumental lift to see a great displacement of diesel come 2030. I would even stretch that to say, boy, if we're having this conversation about up to 2040, um, we might be having the same result. Um, the value proposition for diesel is, is quite substantial. When you look across uh, all these different um, aspects, diesel checks a lot of boxes that other alternatives are going to have a very difficult time to meet. And you can see those represented here, 142,000 fueling stations uh, for starters, million-mile operation. Um, the other thing I just uh, noticed, uh, looking at high resale value kinds of issues, uh, here's some data I pulled off of Penske Truck Leasing's website. Um, if you had $58,000 to invest in a used vehicle, you could buy a natural gas 2014 vehicle for that $58,000. It only has 120,000 miles on it. But then you can buy a 2014 Freightliner, same basic model type, that has almost three times the mileage for $58,000, the same amount. So which technology, which fuel has the greater resale value um, based on the market today? And that clearly is diesel. Um, I think as we also talk about this debate, there are some really outside, in, outsized influences here by California and large industry players. And these are important to keep them in mind because they distort the bigger challenges that alternatives are facing. Um, let's just thinking about California, thinking about California for a second. Um, they've invested more than three billion dollars in electrification, have about half a million uh, vehicles on the road out of 25 million. That's one hundred and seventy nine thousand dollars invested per vehicle. Um, do we think that the rest of the country is up for that? Also, when we think about the composition of the trucking industry, we hear a lot about the major national players, and they are definitely market leaders and, and out in front uh, early adopter kinds. But the bulk of the industry is not them. It's 20 or fewer trucks uh, that are out there. So we have to keep that in mind. And finally, um, the strategies that are boosting diesel future really are three. Uh, getting more efficient, and we look at the progress being made in super truck and a lot of uh, uh, efforts to make the engine itself more efficient and lower in emissions uh, are uh, tremendous. We have even lower NOx and PM emissions coming in the next five years. And we've got some fantastic new fueling options for diesel. So if we're not using diesel fuel, what are we using? Very low carbon fuels or replacing internal combustion engines with e-fuels or ethanol. So um, these are all the reasons that we think that diesel is going to continue to play a major role. This uh, small slide on the right represents a really interesting demonstration uh, project underway right now, um, which, which is uh, being funded by ARB, showing um, just what's possible with, uh, with advanced diesel technology, um, some new opposed piston uh, concepts by Acadies Power. Um, so uh, a lot's going on uh, to make diesel better and make it positioned for the future. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. Very good. Um, I'm going to move now to Colin Murphy. Colin, uh, make the case for battery electric uh, vehicles in long-haul trucking. I think my wait, there are my slides. So thank you, uh, Steve and the Mobile Deep Impact Partners team for the invitation, Mike for the intro, and to all the other debaters um, that have joined me up here. Um, quick disclaimer, though some of it's already been covered. Uh, obviously, a full portfolio of technologies is, is going to be needed. This is not an either-or debate. This is sort of an everything. We're just asking which one's going to be the leader. And myself and several of my colleagues at the UC Institutes of Transportation Studies wrote extensively on this. Uh, there's a link uh, in the slide deck if you get that. I'm also dropping a link into the, the chat. Um, and again, I'm not making any statements on behalf of, of the UC. So, um, you know, the, the question is, why is electricity and, and specifically why is battery electric uh, or, or battery electric trucks going to be dominating the class eights or long haul truck space? And the main reason is, is climate change. We have to get to zero carbon transportation. 
Um, the, the, the slide here is from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. It, is, uh, it looks at all of the climate-related disasters that inflict over a billion dollars of damage. Uh, obviously, the trend line on this is really bad. We've been seeing a lot more of them. Um, and over the last... deaths per year, and this doesn't include all of the smaller sub-billion-dollar ways of, of doing this. And I say all this to make the point that climate change is not is, is no longer a, a future problem. It's no longer something you have to figure out how, how to change it, and it's no longer something where you have to figure out when is the right time to absorb the cost. Our choice is uh, not do we sort of pay money to go green or not. Our choice is do we pay money to reduce our carbon emissions, or do we pay money to keep helicoptering people off roofs, rebuilding flooded towns, uh, re rebuilding fire-destroyed towns. And so uh, it is absolutely essential that, that we get to, to zero carbon as soon as possible, and transportation is one of the major challenges on that. So why does that lead us to electricity? Um, and, and for those of you who know me, it might be a little uh, interesting to see me up here on the side of electricity because I mostly do fuel policy research, and, and some people would think of me as a biofuel guy. But ultimately, I'm a scientist, and I follow the, the evidence. And the evidence says that Across the on-road transportation sector, even in Class 8, uh, in, in the heaviest long-haul trucks, electricity has the best combination of, of cost, effectiveness, and, and a pathway to, to get to zero. So why electricity? First of all, it, it is already working. There are hundreds of Class 7 and 8 battery electric trucks on the road right now. Um, yeah, these are pilot and demonstration product, uh, projects, but it's enough that we're getting a lot of real-world data, and these are uh, showing themselves to be successful. For example, Tesla uses their prototype uh, truck to carry batteries from their Nevada Gigafactory to the Fremont place where they assemble thousands of Teslas per year. This is something that, that they don't have to use that. They use it because it's effective and it can clearly handle that. On top of the hundreds of Class 7 or 8 uh, uh, trucks, so trucks directly relevant to what we're talking about, there are many hundreds to possibly even thousands of electric buses on the road, 2.3 million electric vehicles, light-duty vehicles deployed in the U.S., and thousands more heavy-duty vehicles and millions more light-duty vehicles deployed around the world. This is technology that is, is not speculative. This is technology that is actually in use and, and growing rapidly. Second is that electricity is cheap. Um, yes, the, the cost of batteries is, is high and leads to a higher uh, upfront cost to the vehicle, but electricity is much lower uh, cost per every mile of travel. Deli it delivers more travel effectively. And because an electric vehicle doesn't need to have nearly the same size of radiator, the transmission, the exhaust after treatment, and all these other ancillary systems, there's a lot less maintenance involved. So this is a study that was uh, led by ICF International, a consulting company, that looked at total cost of ownership to the first owner of a vehicle, not over the full lifespan, just to the first owner, you know, the person who makes the decision of whether they buy electric or, or buy diesel. And in California, with the, the incentives we have, uh, trucks are already a lower TCO to the first owner in the class eight space um, across almost every duty cycle. And by 2030, you'll need only a very small incentive like the one from the low carbon fuel standard. You will no longer need like the HVIP or any of the, the major upfront incentives for that same TCO math to be true. So if you're looking for something that, that is cheap and, and uh, has a way to actually reduce cost business, electricity is already there with incentives and will shortly be there, certainly be there by 2030 without incentives. But perhaps most importantly, electricity has the quickest, cheapest, and least risky pathway to get to zero, and that is absolutely critical. So the graph I'm showing here is from transport and, and environment, and it shows basically the, the sort of end, end efficiency of, of energy use in several different methods of transportation, including ones that are very relevant to, to this debate. 
And what uh, I really want you to look at is the overall efficiency number at, at the bottom. When you directly electrify, and that is make electricity, put it into a battery, and use the battery to drive a vehicle, the losses to, fr to friction and uh, to other sort of you know, uh, fugitive energy losses are relatively low. It's a very efficient system in the 70 to 80% end use efficiency. With hydrogen, you, you don't get nearly that much. You're, you lose some uh, making hydrogen from clean sources like electrolysis, and then you lose more when it goes through the, the, the fuel cell. This, this chart even includes um, making zero carbon uh, liquid fuels, so power to liquids, that could be used in a diesel engine. This is probably the only sort of borderline plausible way that, that diesels have to get to zero emissions. And it looks even worse because there's efficiency losses to make the fuel, and then it has to go through an internal combustion engine. And the internal combustion engine, at best, you're, you're, looking, you're losing two-thirds, uh, almost two-thirds of, of the energy to, to heat losses. So knowing that we have to go and decarbonize the entire economy, knowing that we have to go and replace uh, all of our, our, not all, but basically all of the fossil fueled energy generation systems that we have in, in the world, um, and certainly in the U.S., knowing that we have to go and build a, a tremendous amount of renewable electricity in order to meet the demands of the grid and also meet the demands of the vehicles, if you're using electricity, you have the, the most efficient way to get there to make the, the least amount. Hydrogen could plausibly get there, but you have to make at least twice as much initial energy in order to, to provide enough hydrogen. And by the way, this figure doesn't include liquefying the hydrogen to, to get it to, uh, to, to get to a station. So you either have to make the hydrogen on site where you lose more efficiency, or you have to build a nationwide network of hydrogen pipelines in order to arrive at that, that, uh, the availability of, of fuel. So because electricity has got the, the quickest, the cleanest, and the, the best possible way of getting to, to zero, I, it's ultimately going to, to win in, in this fight. I think to sort of preemptively answer a couple of, of the, the questions about why not the, the competition, I think when you look at diesel, the problem is the laws of physics. Internal combustion engines are just going to be limited in, in their efficiency, and no matter if you can find a, a, uh, a significant enough supply of low carbon liquid fuels to, to meet the, the need, and that is a big challenge. And as a fuel guy, I, I can definitely say that and have written extensively on that. Colin, it's, time to, it's time to wrap up, Colin. Oh, sorry. I didn't hear the 30 second. I thought I had more time. Yeah. So, okay. We can save this for later. Um, thank you all. And I look forward to hearing the rest of the, the competitors. Excellent. Thank you very much, Colin. We're going to move on now to Craig Scott, who um, um, tell us why hydrogen is going to dominate, Craig. All right. Thanks. Uh, thanks uh, for the invitation, everyone. Uh, Steve and uh, Mike for moderating, and my fellow panelists uh, for uh, participating. Let me see if I can get my screen going here. All right. Everybody, see that? Yes. Yes. Right. Okay. Great. So um, I'm here today to make the case for hydrogen and why um, why I believe it is uh, going to be um, um, the, the solution to the future here as we move uh, towards a, uh, a zero carbon or low carbon uh, heavy duty transport world. So of course, uh, as everyone's already stated today, the verdict is clearly in um, society must decarbonize in order to uh, hopefully prevent any uh, sustained long-term uh, issues related to uh, to greenhouse gas emissions and, uh, and a warming or, or chilling planet. And um, and so uh, 
how do we most efficiently and effectively do this is, is really the, uh, the key in the question for us over the next uh, several decades. Um, I'll make the argument that hydrogen is unique uh, in, in its fuel type, and that's because it is it has a very wide uh, cross-sector adoption potential, right? So here I have what I call a hydrogen flywheel up on the screen. And what this uh, really means to say is that uh, as we make uh, more compelling product offerings for fuel cells, um, you know, be that uh, forklifts to commercial vehicles, uh, to passenger vehicles, to stationary power, to uh, to airplanes, to buses, um, fuel cells can meet all of these demands. Um, uh, they're very, very scalable and very easily adapted to uh, different uh, applications. And as we do that, uh, we grow naturally the the demand for the molecule and for hydrogen, and therefore that increases the uh, the growth of infrastructure, which therefore uh, has this virtuous effect of reducing the cost of hydrogen for everyone throughout the value chain. And that creates uh, a wider and uh, deeper uh, pool of products and applications that can use hydrogen and around and around we go in the flywheel. So uh, although we, we hear a lot about, uh, about batteries these days, um, there's quite the, uh, the echo chamber, I would say. Um, hydrogen um, quietly has been scaling very, very rapidly, not only in the US, but uh, really across the globe. Um, more than uh, 350 terawatt hours of low carbon uh, renewable hydrogen supply uh, has been announced by 2030. Many of that, or much of that in, in the United States. Um, a lot of hydrogen uh, passenger vehicle models uh, have been uh, announced over the next five years. There's a very large scale infrastructure projects underway and under consideration um, in places like Europe, as well as uh, Asia. Um, very significant increase in hydrogen refueling stations across the world, right? So we didn't uh, go from uh, horses to gasoline overnight. We're not going to go from uh, diesel to electricity and hydrogen overnight either. And uh, there has been a uh, significant cost reduction in renewable hydrogen over the last 10 years. So, so much, in fact, that in places like California, um, making and selling renewable hydrogen is often uh, much cheaper than its SMR con uh, constituent. And today, as I drove down the street in LA and saw gas at $6.55 a gallon, um, it is actually cheaper than premium gasoline as well. So $300 billion in new investments by 2030 are anticipated in the space. And, um, and the Hydrogen Council, which is a global organization made up of some of the world's largest companies focused on, uh, on decarbonizing transportation now totals uh, over 130 members, which is a significant increase over the past several years. Um, and look, you don't need to uh, take my word for it. Fuel cell uh, class eight trucks are here. There, this is a picture of five trucks that were developed by PACCAR, Kenworth and Toyota um, in a project with the uh, Air Resources Board. Um, we, uh, we have been operating these trucks or, or the companies I should say have been operating these trucks um, in and around the Port of Los Angeles, hauling a full 80,000 pounds. And this first fleet of trucks over the last uh, just one and a half years have accumulated 50,000 on-road miles, um, which I would venture to guess is more than any other uh, fleet of, of zero-emission vehicle trucks uh, has uh, in the world. And uh, it's doing, uh, these trucks are doing normal daily routes, um, providing uh, value to their operators and to their customers. And uh, it, it's, uh, it's not a science experiment, it's, it's ready today. But really, what, what's most important is what do customers want to buy, and um, how can how can uh, uh, governments and uh, manufacturers provide value to their customers such that they can continue, um, as as both Mike and Alan indicated earlier, uh, to deliver on the promises that their customers expect. And really, there is no other uh, option for long haul transport uh, than fuel cell vehicle uh, over the uh, the next uh, several decades. And here you see a very 
a very simple comparison of how they stack up. So from a weight point of view, fuel cells are much, uh, much, more, much more similar to diesel, um, whereas BEVs uh, can be potentially 70% heavier. Um, refueling time, very key to TCO or total cost of ownership, uh, uh, very close to diesel, maybe better in some cases. Uh, range, very similar up to 500 miles. Operating hours, also um, instrumental in calculating total cost of ownership for fleets, uh, 22 hours, very very similar to diesel. And it doesn't matter whether it's snowing or raining or, or 150 degrees in, uh, in Death Valley, the, the range uh, loss is minimal. That's because um, we're using hydrogen as the fuel type. A uh, couple quick final points. Uh, green uh, Hydrogen obviously provides significant potential for greenhouse gas reduction. Here's a comparison of uh, grams of CO2 equivalent per mile uh, comparing gasoline at 410. Uh, BEVs uh, potentially obviously at zero, just like fuel cells, but also starting from a lower uh, point of uh, potentially just 210 grams uh, of CO2 per equivalent mile. And uh, just a couple quick more slides here. Uh, hydrogen costs, obviously this is very important to, the, uh, uh, to operators. What is the total cost of ownership here? It's a chart indicating um, where uh, fuel cells rank today, where they're going to be at uh, the 2025, 2026 timeframe, and really the crossover point uh, where they become cheaper at, at, uh, at 2030. And this is primarily driven by fuel costs, which are, as I mentioned earlier, significantly decreasing uh, over these last several years and continue to go forward. And finally, the last slide. Um, look, the picture is bigger than just California. I think uh, Alan mentioned this as well. Um, there are 150,000 fueling stations across the United States, all of which can provide incredible value uh, to, to their customers, to their fleet customers, to their trucks, um, who are coming up to fill up with diesel every day. So keeping uh, those businesses running, moving uh, to a fuel that is already familiar with, uh, with most uh, operators and with most uh, oil companies and energy providers, uh, is really a way to make the transition smooth and seamless for everyone. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Uh, so each of the debaters, uh, you know, said some things that I'm sure made their uh, the others uh, cringe a bit. So we're going <laughs> to enter a time. We're going to uh, how could you say that about me and my technology? So uh, we're going to enter a rebuttal time. So um, each of our debaters will have time to um, rebut anything that um, the other two uh, said about um, their technology or something that they brought up. So. Uh, we'll, uh, throughout this debate, continue to go diesel, battery, and hydrogen. So, Alan, um, you've got a couple of minutes to um, to uh, rebut anything that Craig and Colin said around their technologies. Alan. Thank you. Well, Colin, I noticed all of your charts were, uh, were, were transport the, an environment were 2050. I, I thought we were doing a 2030 time frame here, but maybe that, that was just me. Um, I, I think, you know, there are many... Uh, issues around electrification and its potential to really fully displace diesel in the next decade. Um, not the least of which is, can our grid do it? And uh, there's really open question about that. And those that have lived in Texas or the Northeast in the last couple of years recognize that there are periods of time when the grid does not deliver uh, due to weather events, uh, as, as Colin pointed out, um, the, the very uh, justification for electric vehicles, uh, greater reliance on those might put us in peril if we have a grid that can't deliver that. Um, plus, we also know our grid today is largely powered by fossil fuels, uh, 40 plus percent uh, national average or so powered by natural gas. So we're really shifting tailpipe emissions to smokestack in some, in some means there. And then there are the larger questions about the geopolitical 
supply chain uh, issues around electrification with the availability and supplies of lithium, um, whether or not that puts us too much reliant on China. Uh, knowing that the U.S. is working to develop its own supplies of those, uh, could they realistically come and, and solve that question by 2030? Um, I'm not thinking that that's going to happen so much. Um, so um, a few thoughts on electrification. Uh, not that I don't think it's a, a great thing, uh, potential that's out there for sure, and lots of our members are, are working to, uh, to make it more of a reality. But by 2030, it um, doesn't seem like it's possible. Um, next, uh, let me just uh, go to the next slide here. Um, yeah, so on the on the hydrogen side, I think, you know, the, the and, and not to make fun of this, uh, Craig, but, you know, it's always been right around the corner. Uh, for as long as I can remember and being in this industry for 30 plus years now, it's always been right around the corner. Maybe this is the, this time it's it. Uh, I don't know. Uh, there's there's plenty of things happening there, as you point out, some really good things uh, going on there. Um, but, um, you know, we're, we're not going to be there yet. And um, you didn't talk about uh, internal combustion engine hydrogen, um, but that's something I think might uh, might get more attention and might have more advantages. So um, that's uh, that's something there. And the fuel supply questions are, are huge for hydrogen, as, as you point out. Um, you know, California, who's invested the most, has 52 stations today. There's one in New York. None in Georgia or none in Pennsylvania, which I last time I looked were pretty big trucking places. So uh, we got a long ways to go to get hydrogen uh, on on uh, on the on the I would say the corner fuel station, but at the corner fleet station. So um, and then finally, there's the issues of emissions. So it's you know you're sort of in the same boat at some level as diesel, which is there can be emissions coming from from hydrogen, um, uh, particularly for its use in internal combustion engines. Those. Could be managed, I think, just the same as we know about emissions control for diesel today. So um, there you have it, and that's uh, thanks. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Alan. Um, Colin, uh, rebuttal, rebuttal time for you. All right. So, uh, Alan, I'm not sure which one, which chart you were looking at, but uh, this chart, 2020 and 2030. No, it was the chart. one before that. Yeah, that 2020 <laughs> and 2050. So yeah. even 2020 and. Uh, beyond that, this point was really about the, the net uh, uh, sort of energy efficiency of the system, and that's, that's not going to change. But even in 2020, the black numbers are 2020, the gold are 2050. So all of the, the stuff applies now. Um, so to, to sort of make the, the point about uh, hydrogen, um, yes, hydrogen has the ability to refuel quickly, uh, but I, I don't know if that's quite enough, especially because if you look at the trucks that were in um, uh, Alan's, uh, no, Craig's, Craig's presentation as well as this, which is one of the, the sort of Hino Toyota uh, prototypes. Yes, this has about 350 miles of range, but that box behind the cab is filled entirely with hydrogen tanks and, and, and batteries. So what, so the, the value proposition seems to be that, that they can get a long range, but they sacrifice the space that would be used for a sleeper cab. So you have a long range truck that the driver can't sleep in that, Gets, becomes an operational problem. It also becomes a cost problem in the fact that drivers now have to find some, somewhere else. So I don't know that a 500-mile truck with, without a, a sleeper cab is really all that useful uh, given today's long-haul trucking market. Um, on the, in terms of the, the, the weight issue, um, 
you know, that that has been mentioned and, and sort of diesel's ability to, to carry the, the weight. Uh, there was an analysis, this is published in a, in a peer-reviewed journal, I've got the citation right there, that yes, the batteries do add some weight, but you get to remove a lot of the components of the diesel system, so the net loss is about 2,000 pounds, and based on that, about 93% of all Class 8 truck trips in the U.S. could be carried by a truck with 500 miles of battery electric range without affecting payload. So yes, there are 7% of trips where you will lose a 1,000 or 2,000 pounds and need to add slightly more, but that's that's a relative minority of, of the fleet. Um, and finally, to talk about the, the refueling issue. Um, so first, uh, I would say that even with, with, with most trucks right now, even the, the trucks that drive a lot of miles, they still spend a significant fraction of, of their time parked. Uh, maybe if you have a, a, a sort of tandem driver that is really uh, changing, you know, wrapping their sleep schedule around maximizing the number of driving hours, you could get 16 or 18 in motion hours a day, but you still have a long dwell period where the vehicle is parked somewhere that's fully able to recharge. On top of that, there are a number of interesting technologies, including catenaries, putting an arm up to get a power from a wire used by a lot of, of freight trains world or a lot of uh, electric trains worldwide that could charge the, the vehicle en route. And if that doesn't work, yes, you can do battery swapping. This is a picture. There's actually a video, but it's, it's a little bit long and, and has a, a, a narration in, in Chinese. But this is a video of a trailer-mounted battery swapping setup that's already in use. You can either uh, plug this trailer into the grid and charge on site, or you can just bring a new trailer with more batteries that in about two minutes can go and swap an entire battery pack. That battery pack behind the, the cab there uh, is, is one of the, the batteries that swap. So we've already figured out ways to go and, and uh, solve the, the recharge time if rapid recharge can't be solved by simply plugging in vehicle stop. Thank you, Colin. Um, Craig, let's. Uh, what did they all say about hydrogen that got under your skin, sir? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, thanks, everybody. So, uh, interesting comments. I would say that um, uh, you know it is um, interesting always to to hear the uh, the commentary about batteries and about um, things like. Uh, I'll start with the you know uh, Colin's last comment here about battery swapping. Uh, let me show you a, a little image that I, uh, I like to. Uh, Put up every once in a while, so people might remember this uh, this business idea called Better Place. Um, uh, Mr. Mr. Shigati who created this um, on the right there is that what it actually turned into in Denmark a better car wash, um, and that's because uh, battery swapping is a uh, is a silly idea that was never going to go anywhere, and um, and Better Place uh, is, uh, is is actually in a better place. Um, so, um, having said that, uh, uh, you know it's it's. Uh, Hydrogen is the is the fuel that provides um, uh, customers and and, and uh, applications with something that looks just like diesel today. You know, albeit with a lack of infrastructure that has is yet to develop. Um, uh, and the, the notion that we lose sleeper cab is just not correct. We the trucks that I showed you on that screen all have a single sleeper cab today, and can easily be um, could be outfitted with more as we develop the, the technology and the product. Um, I would I would say that the um, column slide uh, showing also the uh, uh, the cost of electricity, I think, um, maybe does some disservice uh, to uh, to the real cost of infrastructure. It was a very, very tiny sliver of gray that showed infrastructure. And I wonder sort of what that's really accounting for. Um, is it accounting for uh, a handful of level two chargers or is it accounting for, you know, things at the megawatt and, and multi-megawatt scale that need to be paid for 
um, by somebody. And, and I guess my question is, who is going to pay for that? So the rate base, is that the expectation? And, and if so, then how is that a, a really a fair sort of comparison against the incumbent technology as well as, as hydrogen? And there was a study that was done in, uh, in the Port of Los Angeles a couple of years ago that showed that just to electrify the port, the port only would be a $14 billion price tag. And so um, I'm not sure how that factors into the TCO, um, but uh, I, I wonder if the accountants have really uh, taken, uh, or I maybe the scientists have taken a good look at the accounting. Um, and I would argue that uh, probably that's not the case. Meanwhile, hydrogen continues to scale down the cost curves. Uh, we've got about a 30 or 40 percent de decrease in prices here in California uh, just over the last uh, five years. And that's moving rapidly towards um, towards things that are uh, probably at the sub eight dollar per kilogram level, which would make a very um, compelling option, I think, for uh, for fleets who are extremely price sensitive um, to how they uh, how they move their goods. Um, the last point I'll make is that um, there is no weight penalty for hydrogen. I'm not sure what that study that uh, Collins uh, cited, but I'm pretty sure that a paper never built a truck. I can assure you, I have, and um, we we have no weight penalties for for hydrogen, but significant weight penalties uh, in, the, in the order of two to three to maybe five times uh, for battery electric vehicles, um, not only the ones that are today, but the ones that are being built. Thanks. Very good, Colin. Thanks. So um, now we're going to move into a question and answer period in this debate. So um, it'll really be twofold. First, each of the uh, debaters will be able to ask a question of their of the other two. Um, and then I'll have some questions uh, for each of the uh, debaters. I've been kind of working on them as we go through here. So um, we need these to be crisp, um, quick questions, quick answers. Um, Alan, you'll go first, and I'd um, like to ask you to ask um, uh, Colin a question and then move to ask um, uh, Craig a question. So, um, Colin, uh, you're up. Um, I think we need Craig to stop sharing. Craig to stop sharing, and then we'll have all of us back on screen here. So, Alan, you're up. Um, quick questions for Colin and then Craig. Sure. Uh, Colin, so my first question to you is about infrastructure. And, um, you know, what, to what extent do we really expect that your, your statement about electricity is cheap today to stand the test of time when the demands on the electric grid from light-duty vehicle electrification plus what you might be talking about here, full-scale electrification of the commercial fleet, um, will we expect to see low electricity rates in the future? And how much of the assumptions about the electrification that you made are based on the idea that we're going to have 100% renewable electricity from solar, wind, and other sources? And the timing for that uh, relative to where we are today seems that, um, you know, a lot of the fossil fuel-powered electricity is, is, is likely to still be around in the next couple of decades. So, you know, it, are we being genuine about the, uh, genuine about the electric potential here with uh, with the future so um two very good questions there um in terms of the the grid if we don't decarbonize the grid none of this matters right like decarbonizing the grid is absolutely essential to having any sort of, of, of solution for for climate change there have been a number of, of studies that, that demonstrate that most of, of the cost of decarbonizing the grid is accommodating the the peak demand time so you know which, which is typically in, in the evening um most people don't need to refuel their trucks precisely in that four-hour block, 
when, when you have residential peak. That's, that's what drives uh, peaks in, in the U.S. And there are multiple studies that, that show that with a relatively minimal amount of, of either uh, grid storage mounted near the, the batteries or scheduling of, of, uh, of recharging times, which can be handled entirely automatically, uh, you can actually, uh, the, the presence of electric vehicles makes it cheaper and easier to accommodate the, the a, a high renewable grid, a high wind and, and solar grid, because they can be used as flexible demand to go and help smooth out peaks of, of, of production. Um, in terms of the, the infrastructure, uh, yes, there are infrastructure costs in, in California in the, the 2045 study where, where we, we did look at the costs and, and uh, Craig, no, we did not assume that they're entirely rate-based or, or outside the scope. Um, they did add, add, add some costs, but when you consider that we're going to be upgrading the grid as well as uh, upgrading turning over our vehicle fleet over the next 25 years, they added a couple percent to the, the, the total cost of the transportation system. That's not meaningless, but they more than paid that back in, in terms of reduced air quality impact. And we didn't even try to place a value on on carbon. So thank you, you, thank you, Colin. They pay for themselves. This is a good investment. Thank you, Colin. Alan, sure, Craig. Um, you've mentioned a lot about fuel cell um, use for hydrogen. What about the internal combustion engine hydrogen option? There is that. Do you see that as viable? I do think uh, hydrogen combustion engines are viable. Um, it's it's often contemplated as a way uh, to. Uh, to move towards hydrogen in a quicker manner, a larger number of molecules moving through the system faster drives the cost down is the assumption. Um, and, you know, converting a, 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 an engine to run on hydrogen is, is not a uh, not as complicated, obviously, as moving around uh, on an immune propulsion type like fuel cells. So um, uh, it's really a question of, uh, you know, are we willing to, as a society, willing to um, have a you know a reduction in maybe total emissions, but not a not a pure zero solution, right? And what's the pathway to that? Often the same argument is made with respect to um, you know going from internal combustion engines right to uh, pure zevs. Is there not an intermediary step, you know, like hybrids, and then you know further than that, a plug-in hybrids? And I think that there's a large role to play for those technologies, especially um, in places um, uh, that aren't California that uh, that don't have the amount of funding that available to subsidize the purchase of these cars, right? Um, and uh, it gives uh, gives folks, uh, manufacturers mostly, an opportunity uh, to transition and, and customers. You know, I can't tell you how many times I get questioned about just normal uh, hybrid vehicles and people ask me, you know, where do you plug it in? So we are, you know, 22 odd years into uh, selling hybrids in this country and uh, a lot of customers still don't fully appreciate or understand um, what the technology does. So, uh, Short answer is yes. I think it's possible. Question is, does society accept it as a uh, as a uh, pathway? Yep. All right. We have to keep. We have to move a little quicker, guys, because uh, we're we're a little bit behind. But um, Colin, a question for Alan and then Scott and then Craig. All right, uh, Alan. The the question is pretty short. What's the internal combustion engine's pathway to zero? There's you know there's no way petroleum can get to zero and. As uh, somebody spent a lot of time researching biofuels, there's no way to produce anywhere near enough biofuels at, at zero carbon. So what's what's the pathway to zero? Well, I would say that we're talking about 2030 here, right? So we're not talking about uh, your perfect solution of zero emission vehicles by 2030 and, and no carbon emissions. And I think, you know, really that premise is, is, is the thing that gets us into trouble, that we assume that these changes are going to happen overnight. And because of... Uh, uh, what you said relative to the, the climate challenge, and I think everyone recognizes the severity of it um, and sees maybe a, a, a direct path to some point in the future, um, it's not going to happen that way. I think uh, anybody that's been around the trucking industry knows that change does not happen overnight. 
and to suggest that we're going to get you know rid of diesel because it has uh, some uh, fractional level of carbon emissions by 2030 is not realistic. It's not in touch with reality. Maybe in California, where there's incredible public dollars that are buying off uh, and, and putting technologies forward. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. We need that kind of investment to kickstart the system. But you know, by yeah, 2030, for, this technology for, is still going to be there. Um, and it doesn't, for, it, for, it doesn't, for, it doesn't say it, it doesn't matter that it's – well, I think, you know, this is an industry that's not a one-size-fits-all. You look at the great diversity of trucking. Uh, there's going to be – these vehicles are going to last 10, 15, 20 years. Um, so come 2030, uh, people are going to still be buying new diesels, as I point out. That uh, you know, California fully envisions that by 2035, 60 percent of new sales are still going to be diesel. That's 2035. So let's go forward another 10 years. So okay. it, yes, well, it might it not be uh, in you know 50 years from now? I can't predict that. You probably can't either. But I think you know it's realistic that this is a technology that's not going to just disappear overnight. It's important that we make it better and better and better, and that's what industry is doing. Okay, very good, Colin. And then Craig, uh, so. In terms of the hydrogen infrastructure and, and cost, I mean, um, there are, you know, what, 70 or so hydrogen stations in California and a few other elsewhere, but almost all of them have required extensive public funding to the build, and uh, the per-gallon cost of hydrogen is still not really anywhere close to competitive with diesel. So how, what, what's hydrogen going to do that's going to, to get this, going to solve the infrastructure problem without requiring a kind of similar level of investment particularly to move hydrogen from where it's generated to the, you know, the stations, the, the tens of thousands of stations we're going to need. Great question. A lot to unpack there. So let me try to do a, a little bit of it since we have a short period of time. Anytime you need to move to new infrastructure, uh, be that uh, hydrogen or battery uh, or moving electrons uh, around a system, um, you are going to need to spend money to do that. Uh, it, it's, uh, we did the same thing for diesel, you know, and, and gasoline over the last hundred years, we're going to have to do the same thing for a new fuel. If that's what we want to do, you know, your, your, your slide on direct electrification is great, except, you know, that, that assumes the electrons go straight into the truck, you know, where, what happens to those, you know, those abandoned or missing electrons that are floating around the grid, right. And those have to go somewhere and those, there are losses that have to be associated with that. And how do you, how do you manage those losses and the, and the, and those electrons. And so, um, in California, right? So I think uh, Alan's right. California has been sort of the uh, the holy grail for these things, and a lot of uh, public funds have gone to support uh, fuel cells and batteries, and that's great. Uh, the future, uh, and that's going to really, I think, help de-risk for other places as we move uh, outside of California and into the Pacific Northwest and maybe eastward, because really hydrogen infrastructure has not been at the same level as, as the product has, right? So the technology has been de developed by manufacturers for the last 30 or 40 years, and Hydrogen stations, I think, uh, have really are still being developed today in, in a lot of ways because um, I think there was not an anticipation that things would, would transition this rapidly. So um, we are seeing, uh, you know, huge improvements just in the last uh, generation alone of, of stations that have come on in California. Uh, you know, doubling the size of stations and halving the cost. Right? That's a tremendous. You know, these things do not normally go in the same direction. Um, Thanks, Craig. So yep. you could you could turn now to um, your questions, Craig, of Alan and Colin. Sure, uh, Ellen. Uh, all really good points. Uh, time frame of 2030 makes it difficult to uh, to to effectively argue against you. So I'm gonna I'm gonna not argue against uh, decarbonization, but instead um, ask um, something a little bit different. So um, you know, given that we we can't decarbonize diesel, um, uh, how about considering the other angle of vehicle drivability and really the changing landscape? Uh, what I what I 
privacy for um, for all consumers, uh, truck drivers included. And I think I would imagine that uh, the truck driving industry is um, probably having the same sort of uh, human resources supply constraints. And, um, you know, drivers, I think, um, are probably, you know, hard to come by and are less interested in driving around 16 geared uh, diesel trucks that make a lot of noise and produce a lot of emissions. Um, so uh, I will say that in the, in the fuel cell world, drivers time and time again report the, you know, a huge satisfaction with uh, improved MDH, right? So there's uh, no noise, no vibration, no harshness. Um, so how do you, how does the, the industry continue to recruit um, drivers uh, in, a, in a world of diesel where they're expecting uh, more comfort fuel to use a simple term. Okay, well, I wasn't expecting that one, but, um, <laughs> you know, I think um, this, this is, a, you know, really a situation where this industry has so much opportunity to improve the efficiency of moving freight, right? We're talking about changing the paradigm of the powertrain and the vehicles, but there's a huge opportunity out there to make the system overall more efficient and how we move goods. And, you know, I would say the last two years, we're, we're, we've learned a lot about that. And I would say we're probably going the wrong way. I, I see three different delivery trucks coming down my street, delivering things like probably cat food, toilet paper, some weird stuff that people, you know, why are, what, what's the logic in that? No matter what it's, what it's burning, it's not, it's not incredibly efficient or smart. So I think that, you know, the opportunity we have to, to decarbonize transportation is to be more efficient with how we move goods and use the human capital that we have the best uh, there is. And there's a huge driver shortage, as you know. Um, so, you know, we sh having autonomous trucks, you know, might be a lot more valuable to industry than trying to fundamentally change all the fuels and technology in the next 10 years, because we can't get drivers today to, to deliver our basic goods. I mean, so we have to, these, these issues are very much intertwined. And as to the future acceptance of diesel, I think there's a huge opportunity to see diesel continue to thrive in very specific niches. Um, and using high carb, uh, low carbon, uh, high quality renewable biodiesel fuels, you know, we're going to see up to 5 billion gallons of those in the, in the coming years, according to DOE. So these represent really a great opportunity in select places. I don't think it's smart to say we're going to fully electrify all long haul trucking. It's not going to happen. It's going to happen in some sectors, in some places, at some different points in time. Um, and Thank the same you. thing goes with diesel. So um, there's, uh, you know, the future is likely to be more eclectic, as I like to say. Thank you, Alan. Good. For Colin. Thanks. Yes, Colin. Um, so, uh, good answer, uh, Alan. Thank you very much. So, uh, you know, Colin, putting aside, uh, you know, the obvious concerns um, uh, with, with electrifying and the huge costs associated with making and delivering electrons, both to vehicles and trucks, um, you know, I think everyone would agree that uh, you know, the, the greenhouse gas emission story is one part of it, but the overall uh, environmental issues. Um, associated with any technology, be it diesels or batteries alike, um, are all uh, important and significant and daunting. Um, and so if you, if you think about um, uh, what, what are those issues, what are, the, what are the recycling issues for spent batteries? You know, and of course, um, how do you manage this, right? So there's secondary use cases, but at some point, um, the issue around dismantling and disposing of, of some pretty toxic materials has to be dealt with. And, um, you know, there's an estimate roughly floating around of about, you know, a million tons of 2025 of active materials that need to be dealt with, um, nearly nearly 3 million tons at 2030. Um, and by that period of time, we'll be uh, potentially scaling to 4.5 terawatt hours of battery production, um, you know, all in a world where, you know, today we have very low penetration of EVs. So this, this issue was not uh, going in, in, if you might say, the right direction, it may be going in the wrong direction. So um, uh, 
Uh, given that there are really no recycling facilities in, in the U.S. at all, and maybe only a couple very, uh, very small scale uh, demonstrations happening in other parts of the world, um, you know, how do we reconcile the message of BEV as pro-environmental without also acknowledging the massive um, and really unknown anti-environmental recycling issues? So that's a, a good question, um, and it's one that, that there's been a lot of attention on in the, the le research literature, particularly in the life cycle analysis field. Um, so two answers to that. The first is that when you look at the environmental impact of, of the different technologies over their, their full life cycle, um, batteries have the, the lowest impact of them all, certainly far lower than, than diesel. Um, even when you get away from the, the greenhouse gas and the driving emissions, the uh, production and refining of, of petroleum is not exactly a clean thing to do. Um, and pretty much all of the, the you know, questions that apply to batteries about exotic materials and recycling also applied hydrogen fuel cells. Um, they, they require a lot of exotic materials, catalysts, and so uh, that, that's going to be there when you, um, but when you look at the full life cycle, in part because of the high efficiency and, and the total amount of utility each battery gives for every kind of unit of, of material input, uh, batteries end up being the lowest footprint across just about every uh, category of, of environmental impact. Um, uh, second, I, I would say that uh, Batteries, lithium-ion batteries, certainly at the scale that that we are uh, talking about, you know, the the you know many ten, tens of, of kilowatt hour um, uh, installations you put in you know, something like a truck, they're still relatively in their infancy, and there are a lot of technologies that are coming down that reduce the the use of, of a lot of the materials that are really problematic. So for example, we're getting new lithium-ion chemistries that use graphite instead of cobalt as the terms of the cathode or, or the anode. There are solid state batteries, which uh, uh, reduce the need for lithium, as well as a lot of the other things. And finally, I would say that in the U.S. right now, automotive batteries are have the highest rate of recycling of any consumer product. About 98% of automotive lead acid batteries are currently collected and, and recycled right now. You're right, we're not doing it for lithium ion, because as you pointed out, there hasn't been a lithium ion industry yet. Um, but we have a, a model. Thank you, know How this works and the technological capacity is absolutely there. Thank you, Colin. Hey, this uh, debate's been phenomenal. And throughout all of your opening statements and rebuttals, and now these questions, all the questions that I had, um, you know, you, you really addressed. So I'm going to skip and, and not ask my questions. Um, they've really already been answered, and we'll just go back through it. But um, we're going to have uh, closing statements from each of you, um, and we're going to ask you to do this in one minute. So um, we'll start with uh, Alan for a minute, um, a closing statement. Thanks, Mike, and uh, I want to thank my uh, my uh, co uh, co debaters here. This has been uh, been a lot of fun. Um, a couple of uh, final thoughts from uh, my perspective here. I think you know it's pretty clear that through 2030, uh, diesel is going to continue to dominate. Um, it's a technology that's not standing still. It's continuing to improve, and uh, there's more of that to come. And uh, as I said before, I think, you know, changing the transportation energy paradigm, uh, like many things in life, is going to take longer and cost more. And there's likely to be uh, no direct uh, linear uh, paths to uh, certain endpoints that might be envisioned by various uh, folks today. Um, I think that uh, there's, there's so much uh, public investment right now in uh, new technologies, electrification, hydrogen, et cetera, in California. And uh, I just marvel every day that, uh, each time a fleet uh, decides to try five vehicles of some kind, there's, you know, three days worth of press releases about it. And it, it has an outsized influence on the psyche here. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think we have a lot to go um, to see those technologies to fruition. 
not to mention reckoning with the dollars that uh, need to go behind it. Um, I think that uh, the psyche of this industry and trucking is that uh, folks are, might be adverse to risk at, uh, adverse to risk at, at first, but uh, likely to uh, maybe to explore some of these technologies down the road. Thank you. But uh, they're going to keep diesel as number one. And so that's why I think that the future is likely to be uh, more uh, eclectic than electric. So um, thank you very thank much. Thank you, Alan. Very good. Thank you, Alan. Colin? So uh, thank you to, to Steve and, and the team and to all the debaters on, on the stage here today. Um, I definitely think that uh, we've all have seen a lot of really good ideas, and hopefully um, everybody who's watching has, has gained a, a better understanding of the space. This is a complex space. It's not going to be just one technology, but the question is, what's going to be uh, the, the, the plurality? What's going to be most of the sales? And I think it's clearly going to be electric, because we know that you we, we have to get to zero. We know that if we don't get to zero, all the costs that we're already bearing are, are only going to multiply and, and things are going to get a lot worse. The internal combustion in general and, and diesel engines in particular just do not have a pathway to zero. There's there's no technology. I've spent a lot of time looking at it that they just can't get there. So while the diesels have gotten remarkably better over the last couple of decades and they'll continue to, to play a role, uh, the, the pathway to success does not run through diesel and, and the pathway to success, in fact, relies on, on reducing that as much as possible. So the question really comes down to hydrogen, which at least does have a plausible way to, to get to zero and, and the competitors. But batteries are ahead of hydrogen in every way that, that really matters. They're cheaper. There's more of them deployed right now. They've been deployed in a wider variety of, of, of circumstances, and they have a better efficiency. So if you're going to have to make a lot of renewable energy to, to fuel your electric trucks, uh, you have to make two Thanks. or three times that much to fuel the hydrogen trucks, and that's why electric is going to be the long-run solution. Thanks. Thanks, Colin. Greg. Thanks. I'm going to show one last slide here. So thanks, everybody, uh, my fellow panelists. Uh, great conversation today. I really enjoyed the, the chat. Um, uh, 2030 is a tough tough mark to, to make. I do agree that the uh, um, this is not a zero-sum game. There's going to be a role for, for everything, and really no Zev is a bad Zev, as I like to say. But fuel cells, I, I argue, are the uh, the next generation of electric vehicles, right? They're electric vehicles that make their own electricity on demand. They're not dependent on uh on really tough laws of physics to overcome. And um, and at the end of the day, they provide a value proposition to the customer um, that is really what's most important. So um, we can argue about efficiencies and whether electrons are going directly into a truck or going someplace else first. Um, but efficiency is not just measured at, at, the, uh, at the road and at the wheels. It's measured at people's businesses and their pocketbooks and how they are able to get goods from one place to the other and stay in business. And um, while uh, both of these technologies, batteries and fuel cells, are still arguably in their infant stages with respect to uh, adoption, um, they are very much uh, moving in the right direction of, of transforming uh, this space. And, you know, it's going to take time and money to make the infrastructure for each of them. Uh, but, but the reality is this hydrogen is here today. It's ready to go. Um, uh, it's better in, in every in every mark. Uh, you don't need uh, two times as many trucks uh, to, to make the routes uh, do do those same deliveries. And um, and thank you, Craig. Sure. Thank you very much, gentlemen. It's been a real pleasure, and I'll turn it back over to you, Steve. Um, thank you all for joining today. Thanks. Um, uh, before we go to the reception. Um, please take a moment to respond to the survey question again, both inside Toucan and in the live stream, after which we'll display the results. Um, also, if you're listening to the live stream and we're on the waiting list for the reception, you should have received an email from Amr with the login details 
so that you can join us and participate directly. I really want to thank Alan, Colin, and Craig for agreeing to take so much fire today and for helping us understand a really complex issue. I'd also like to thank Mike for keeping them all honest. Thanks also to Bain, Credit Suisse, the Autotech Council, CalSTAR, CoMotion, EPRI, the American Debate League, and everybody else who helped bring this together. Uh, special thanks to Toucan for creating an environment for people to interact in a virtual space that almost makes people feel normal again. Um, before I turn the event over to Antonia and the reception, note that each of the debaters will be at a virtual table labeled as a pro-internal combustion, pro-battery electric, or pro-hydrogen, and Mike will be at the space labeled still undecided. Um, so you can find members of our team in the mobility, you can find members of our team in the Mobility Impact Partners Group. And in addition, we've specially invited the CEOs of two companies that I hope will challenge your thinking about this issue even further. BJ Johnson from Clearflame can be found at the appropriate label Clearflame Group. He represents something fundamentally different from what you've heard so far, an entirely new approach to combustion that can be integrated into existing infrastructure. In addition, Asher Bennett is here from Teva, who can be found at his appropriate label group. Um, Teva is also taking an entirely different approach to this challenge by hybridizing electric and hydrogen propulsion in a variety of um, different size vehicles and different use cases. While you should enjoy, enjoy these guys at any time, um, BJ will have a more formal introduction, let's say starting at 12.15, so that's in eight minutes. Um, and Asher will have one starting at 12.25, which is in 18 minutes. So note that you need to be in their group to hear them. They won't be broadcasting to the entire um, event like I am right now. Um, and that groups are limited to 16 people. Um, last thing I'll mention is that the next impact debate will actually take place live in Miami, co-sponsored with CoMotion on the 21st of April at 4 p.m. local time. That debate is going to be about the future of car ownership. Will we reach peak global car ownership in the next decade? Arguing in favor of peak car will be Mark Godfordson from Bain. And arguing that car ownership will continue to rise globally will be Dave Keith of MIT. We look forward to seeing you there in person and, partic and, and or participating virtually via our live cast. We'll also send more information about this in a timely manner. Once again, Thank you all for joining us. I'm now pleased to turn the event back over to Antonia, who will help us all figure out how best to enjoy the reception. Hello, everybody. Um, I, just before we go back into the toucan stuff, the answer is yes, I'm showing you results. Um, here are the results to the survey. So started off in the initial survey, um, the people thought that battery electric was going to dominate new vehicle sales for long distance road freight in 2030, followed by internal combustion and then hydrogen. And then at the end of the event, internal combustion seems to win out significantly followed by battery electric and hydrogen. So I just wanted to give a round of applause to all of the debaters. And thank you so much, Mike, for moderating 
This is a fantastic event. Um, and thank you all for participating in this poll as well. So now just for everybody who's new to Toucan, who came in just a little bit after I gave my initial spiel or anyone who has forgotten, this is Toucan. It's specifically designed to create a kind of networking environment that's just like real life. So you can choose an individual or a group that you'd like to join. The way that you do that is by hovering over that individual or group and clicking the join button. To leave a group, you have two choices. You can either click join on a different group or individual and go and join them immediately. Or in the middle of every group, there is a leave button. So you can just click the leave button to exit the group. The maximum number of people in a group is 16. So also you'll notice that sometimes there are some emoticons, emojis flying around. You can just hover over an individual person and you can send them a wave, you can send them a heart, or you can send them an instant direct message. There are a couple of these purple circles floating around in the space with some labels. If you wanna talk about those topics or if you wanna participate in those sessions, then just hover over those purple circles and click the join button. Lastly, I'd also like to tell you about a feature. You can fill out your profile, your personal profile, Profile by hovering over your own video and clicking the edit profile button that is third from the left. That will update in real time. And that's a way for you to tell everybody at the event who you are. And the way that you see somebody else's profile is by hovering over their video and clicking their name. There's a little I next to it as well. So that way, you know who you're talking to. Everybody knows who you are. Um, you can also put your social media there for people to connect after the event. Thank you so much and enjoy. If you have any questions, please come find me. Uh, I have a Toucan logo as my profile picture.